0: Isaiah 53, in the book of Isaiah, we find the Lord's warnings regarding coming captivity for his people, Israel. Israel had come to become obstinate, rebellious. However, like many of the prophets, Isaiah, as he warns of coming captivity, he also gives notes of hope. Although Israel is under God's judgment now, God gives the hope that according to His covenant promises, there will eventually come an eternal kingdom, an eternal kingdom of righteousness. And could you imagine that? A people who are giving themselves over to unrighteousness, falling back into the cycle of sin and rebellion and then judgment over and over and over again. And Isaiah is now coming with a promise. The day is going to come where there will be a kingdom of righteousness in which redeemed men and women will live in God's presence for eternity. And that promise stands, according to Isaiah. God will fulfill all of his promises despite what it might seem like in the moment. That's a wonderful lesson for us as well, because God oftentimes makes promises, allows circumstances to get such where the promise, the fulfillment of those promises seems an impossibility yet he still fulfills all of his promises uh, every time. And so although God's people would rebel against him, he would not remove his steadfast love, that covenant love, from them. He would not violate his covenant. He would not violate or alter his promises. Instead, through chastisement, through discipline, he would purify a remnant of his people, and they would enter into that eternal kingdom marked by righteousness. That's the promise. So within the book of Isaiah, there are four significant passages which rest the future hope of that salvation and that coming kingdom upon one significant individual, an unnamed individual. In these passages, he's simply called the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. Consequently, these passages are known as the servant songs. So in Isaiah 49, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to summarize, actually 42, we have this individual called the servant of the Lord presented as one who will be upheld by God, who will be chosen by God, in whom God's soul will delight. The servant of the Lord is presented as one who will not uh, break a bruised reed. He'll be gentle. He'll be meek. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice on earth. He'll be given as a covenant for the people. He will be a light for the nations. He will open blind eyes. He will bring out prisoners. He will deliver those who sit in darkness. All this is said of this servant of the Lord. So he's meek and he's gentle. He brings forth justice. He's single-minded in his determination to bring forth justice. And he will be the key figure upon whom the Lord will make a covenant with his people, a covenant of peace, a covenant of reconciliation. So that's all in Isaiah 42. Then Isaiah 49, which is another one of these servant songs speaking about this coming servant of the Lord, he's described as one who will bring Israel back to God. He's described as one who will be honored in the eyes of God. It said that God is his strength. He will be a light for the nations so that God's salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Further, it says that kings of the earth will prostrate themselves before him. And again, in Isaiah 49, we're told that God will give him a covenant as a covenant to the people. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 42, we're told that he will have special mercy upon the oppressed. His character is such that he's going to have a heart for the downtrodden. He will rescue prisoners. He will satisfy those who are hungry and thirsty. He'll protect them from danger. He will have pity on them, and he'll lead them by springs of water, just like a shepherd might lead sheep. That's Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Then in Isaiah chapter 50, this servant speaks as one whom the Lord has given knowledge and instruction. He speaks words which bring sustenance to the weary. We also begin to see introduced the idea that this servant of the Lord will suffer. He's one who will willingly give himself to suffer disgrace at the hands of his enemies. And suffering, however, it indicates that the Lord will deliver him and that he'll be vindicated. And then we come to the fourth servant song. That's Isaiah 52 and 53, and shockingly, what we find is almost what appears to be sort of a counter climax in these servant songs. I mean, you get the sense that we're on the threshold of this coming kingdom, and this servant is going to appear, and I mean, righteousness is just around the corner. However, we come to Isaiah 52 and 53, and we find that this servant of the Lord is going to bring salvation for his people. But he's going to do it by himself, what, suffering a shameful death. And that's what we find in Isaiah 52. Let's read it, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations." Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which was not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah is writing this song many hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet here he explicitly describes the character and the crucifixion of Jesus. More than this, he even explains the theology, the at work, which made Christ's substitutionary sacrifice necessary. And so we're just going to work our way uh, piece by piece through this servant song. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Like having barren soil that shouldn't really be bringing forth any life, suddenly a root appears out of that dry ground. After 400 years of divine silence following the close of the Old Testament, Jesus is born. He brought life and light in the midst of death and darkness. A life giver came from a people who were bound to death. And he would come in a way which would confound the superficial pride of men. He's born to an unknown woman in an unknown town, revealed to lowly shepherds, born in a manger. His ministry would do the same as he seeks out the weak he seeks out the downtrodden, the tired, the oppressed, the sinful who flock to him. And so through his earthly ministry, the Lord would confront human pride and he would confound human wisdom. Isaiah eleven four says, verse 1-4 through 4 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. But Jesus would come at a time when Israel was corrupt, led by hypocritical legalists, led by unfaithful shepherds, who victimized the sheep instead of leading the sheep. Shepherds who, instead of swinging the doors open to the kingdom of God, Jesus says of them that they slammed it in the face of those who would enter the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual leaders who preyed upon people. Jesus would say that instead of making disciples of the kingdom of heaven, they made them twice full children of hell. Instead of teaching the word of God, they taught their own commandments as true doctrine. These leaders we see in the New Testament can be described as children of Satan doing their father's bidding. What hope they had in a Messiah was corrupt. They were self-righteous, feeling no need for personal salvation. What hope they had in the promises of a coming Messiah, the servant of the Lord, was a hope shaped more by their political ambitions than by their understanding of Scripture. So, when the servant of the Lord did come, in that context, he came in a way which the Jews did not expect. They're blinded by their own pride, blinded by their own self-righteousness, and so ultimately they would reject him. Verse 2, look again, it says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Again, the nature of Jesus' birth, his family, his appearance, how he conducted his ministry, none of it appealed to the self-righteous. None of it squared with human wisdom. And so, in verse 3, he was despised. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and it says, and we esteemed him not. Why would people reject him? Well, because it confounds their human wisdom. It confounds their religious sensibilities. His coming didn't square with their kind of corruption or the, of the Old Testament teaching on who the Messiah would be. And not only that, but Jesus Christ came with a message of repentance, do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Repent. He said, and believe in me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. And so that was too much for those religious hypocrites, legalists, to handle, and they rejected him. Salvation, repentance. We don't need any repentance. We're children of God. We are uh, Jews. And so he was rejected. John 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It says there he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Wasn't Jesus Christ filled with joy? Yes, he was filled with joy. But how is it that it can be described as a man of sorrows? What's the source of this sorrow? Well, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. We see Christ looking at the city of Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Then he says this, How often would I have gathered you together, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's saying he's weeping for his people. If you only knew the importance of this moment, if you only knew the significance of my coming, you would come and you would receive salvation. You would enter into the covenant of peace. You would be reconciled to the Father and you'd be eternally secure in Him, yet they would not come. That's where the sorrow comes from. Luke 19.41 says, when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes." Jesus is saying, you're being confirmed in your rebellion. We see that sorrow also in Matthew 26, verse 37. It says, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. Why, yeah, the rejection of him by the people, uh, his own countrymen, his own fellow Jews, not entering into that covenant of peace because of their own rebellion but also because he was looking forward to his coming self-sacrifice on the cross. And so verse 3 says, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That again is looking forward to the crucifixion. His body at some point would be so wrecked upon the cross that he would be revolting so that men would look away in horror, disgust, but also disdain. Again, verse 4, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The one whom the Lord had chosen to bring his covenant promises to pass, who came with love and mercy for the weak and rejected, who spoke only words of righteousness, suffered a revolting death. And those who looked upon him responded by proclaiming that he was getting exactly what he deserved. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. God did that to him because he deserves it. That's the idea. That's the thinking. I mean, how could they be this blind? You know, on multiple occasions, they sought to stone Jesus due to blasphemy. John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see it again in Mark chapter 14. Here he is before the high priest says, but he remained silent and made no answer. By the way, Isaiah touches on that when he says he's like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death, as deserving death. So Christ comes as the promised Messiah He comes exactly in accord with what the Old Testament prophecies predicted, and the Jews being so corrupt and so ignorant of the Scriptures that when he comes, they can't handle it, and they accuse him of blasphemy. So in their eyes, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, was deserving of death. God was punishing him upon the cross. So God, in his perfect timing, sent the Messiah, And he sent him at a time when his people, the Jews, had so corrupted Judaism that they no longer possessed the ability to recognize and to receive their Messiah. So while the Jews were puffed up in self-righteousness, consumed with worldly thinking, corrupted by a hypocritical religious system, God quietly sends his son, the Messiah, in a way which confounds all human expectations, all human instincts. Yet he did so exactly in the way predicted by Scripture. They were so spiritually deaf and blind, so ignorant of the word that they couldn't see it. Their hearts were so hard and their consciences were seared. Far from welcoming the Messiah and bowing before him, they despised him. They rejected him. They esteemed him not, it says. They considered him useless. They cast him aside like garbage. But notice verse 2 and 3 again. Think about the tense that's being used here. Again, this is written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, but it's worded in the past tense. For he grew up before him like a young plant. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. He was despised and rejected by men. Uh, It says that men will hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's in the past tense. Isn't that interesting? Isaiah here is writing of future (laughs) events but wording it as if the speaker is looking back and recalling past events. What we have here is a prophecy which looks forward to a time when those who rejected the Messiah would come to a mournful realization of what they had done. Although the speaker states the manner in which Israel viewed the Messiah and how the sinful blindness led them to reject him, he then begins to show kind of how that veil of confusion will be lifted from that generation, and a remnant of Israel will begin to fully understand who the Messiah was and what they were actually guilty of by rejecting him. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What Isaiah says is going to happen, Isaiah is looking forward to and uh, describing for us a time when Israel realizes what they've done. And so look at what these Jews ultimately begin to realize in verse 4. Again, this is the veil being lifted. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought he was suffering for his own sin, but we realized now he was suffering for our sin. We felt fully justified in our hatred and rejection of him. Seeing him on the cross, we saw the just judgment of a sinner, a blasphemer. We felt he was getting exactly what he deserved. He came with a message which condemned Israel, which grouped us in with the Gentiles requiring repentance. He confounded our leaders. He associated us with sinners. Beyond this, he tried to make himself one with God. And so we despised him and did so in conceited self-righteousness. In their minds, they could say, at that time, our hatred against him was in service to our God, or so we thought. But what a stark realization dawned upon them. They're saying now God has lifted our blindness. In seeing his torn, bleeding body, a scene so revolting that we had to turn our heads away, we now have begun to realize it wasn't for his sins that he was suffering. But as we look at his body torn and his blood, we realize that all of that was for us. All of that was for us. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. They're saying in our spiritual blindness, we looked upon him as he writhed in pain and felt no empathy. We felt no pity. He was getting what he deserved after all. But now we see it. But now we see it. His wounds were wounds for our transgressions. His Being crushed was for our iniquities. The sin that we despised in him was not actually his own sin, but it was our sin. He was suffering for us, and he was suffering because of us. And all of a sudden, our eyes see it. He wasn't a sinner. He was a savior. He wasn't a blasphemer. He was Lord. He wasn't refused to be cast out, garbage to be tossed away, but he was the pearl of great price to be treasured, to be adored. He wasn't a failed religious leader, selfishly seeking a following. He was the true shepherd of Israel, gathering together the flock of God. As God lifted the blindness, Jesus upon the cross transformed from the ultimate villain, suffering the just penalty for his own sins, into a suffering sacrifice who willingly gave himself for the sins of the very people who had rejected him. He suffered for us. He is... He was our substitute. That's the realization dawning upon the individuals in Isaiah 53. The New Testament affirms that Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And that's reflected in Isaiah fifty three five. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And so when we get to Isaiah 54 and 55 next week, we're going to see that what the servant of the Lord, what Jesus Christ has done through his death, is he actually ushers in what's called the covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant of peace. The idea being that now reconciliation with God is possible so that God's wrath is turned away from the sins of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Peace is made between us and God. Through his death, by bearing our sins and suffering the penalty that rightfully belonged to us, he made peace between us and God. God's wrath was absorbed by Christ and turned away from us, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what is necessary for you is that peace be made between you and God. We are all sinners. As we're going to see, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all sinners. Uh, You are naturally at enmity with God. Peace and reconciliation is necessary, and that peace has been made through Christ's sacrificial death for you on the cross. Romans 5.10 says, if, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, uh, so much the more will we be saved by His life. But the point is, we're reconciled to God through Christ's death. The servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, then died in the place of sinners. Christ didn't die for His own sins, but He bore the sins of all who would believe in Him. He didn't die because he was an enemy of God. He died to reconcile enemies to God. The substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ then produces peace between God and man. So why is this necessary? Why is peace necessary? Why is a covenant of peace? Why is reconciliation necessary? Well, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here the speaker has a clear understanding of the depravity of man. This is human nature. This is the human condition. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. This is an indictment, not just of the Jews, but of everyone. This is clear as Paul pulls this truth forward in Romans chapter 3, and he's writing to Gentiles. He says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, that's the biblical uh, profile of human beings in general. Why is peace necessary? Why is reconciliation necessary? Because all are sinners. Everyone has strayed from God. Every man does his own thing, does his own desires, lives for themselves. Every man becomes their own moral authority, becoming his own God. All human beings born into the world are born into iniquity. All are sinners, sinners by nature, sinners by practice. There are no exceptions. And so, but that idea of going astray assumes what? It assumes that there is a right path to keep and that to stray is to stray from that path. So what is that path? In our sinfulness, we stray from the law of God. We stray from God's righteousness. In committing iniquity, we've transgressed the law of God and deserved the just penalty for our rebellion. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law of God reveals to us that we are absolutely incapable of keeping the righteous requirement of the law. Every mouth is stopped by the law. No one can say, I can do it. No one can say that in and of myself, uh, I can please God by my own righteousness. The law reveals uh, that all of us fall short. So, how then can a sinful world, bound in their own sin, incapable of fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, how then can they find peace with God? Well, verse 6 All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, We cannot eradicate our own sin, we cannot work off our own sin by trying to be good people. So what then must happen so that we can have peace? Well, our sin has to be eradicated. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, it says in verse 6 that he laid on him, who's the him. That's the servant of the Lord. That's Jesus. He has laid on Jesus our iniquity. The speaker sees in Christ's death more than an atrocity committed by lawless men, though it was that, and they are guilty for crucifying Jesus. But he sees a divine act. Whereby the Lord Himself has laid the iniquities of us all upon Jesus. So, what does that mean? Did Christ become a sinner on the cross? No. But on the cross, God the Father, as judge, declared that Christ, it was as if Christ had committed the sins of those for whom He was dying. He was not a sinner. But it was declared as if he had committed the sins of you and I. And he was punished as one who had. <clears throat> Again, Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we call penal substitution, the idea of a penalty. He was our substitute to bear the penalty that was due us. Bearing the sin of the world, Christ then incurred the just penalty for such sin, which is the wrath of a holy God. So verse 5 of Isaiah 53 says, But he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was actually punished for us. And who did the crushing here? Who's administering the consequence for our sin? Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And so on. God the Father sends his Son who willingly gives himself in our place to bear the penalty which is due to us upon the cross so that we can have peace with God. There's a theological term for this, propitiation. We're going to see that a little bit later as well. Peace was necessary because the sinfulness of man separated man from God and incurred his wrath. How then was that peace accomplished? God's justice against man's sin was satisfied as he crushed the Messiah. He exercised his full wrath against man's sin upon Jesus Christ. In doing so, he received his death, Christ's death, as an offering for the guilt of man. That's in verse 10 again. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering from guilt and so on. So the Messiah satisfies God's righteous anger turns away his wrath from man. And as our passage says in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The idea of propitiation is just that, that God is satisfied and his wrath is turned away. So the idea being that Jesus Christ gives himself one who is absolutely righteous, lives a perfect life, gives himself, not having any sin of his own, standing in our place to bear the penalty for our sin from the Father. The Father pours out his unrestrained wrath upon his Son, who willingly bears that on our behalf. And then it says in verse 11, he is satisfied. He is satisfied. And again, that's what the Bible calls propitiation. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the significance of Isaiah 53.6. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. The imagery here in Isaiah 53, the idea of having Christ upon whom the Father lays our iniquity, that imagery he's pulling from the Day of Atonement, specifically from the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, verse 21. It says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. So uh, now this is a figure. The sins of the people are not actually on the goat. Uh, but this is a practice that's meant to symbolize something. And so Aaron prays, he confesses the sins of the people, places them on the goat. The goat is then sent into the wilderness as if the sins of the people are being driven away from them. Then it continues. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, uh, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Your sins will be placed on a scapegoat. Now, the goat didn't really commit the sin. It wasn't actually guilty, but that was the declaration. And then the goat is cast off so that it appears as if the sins are being driven away. So what? So atonement can be made. So that you can be made at one with God. The scapegoat is a foreshadowing of the Messiah who would come. All of the sins of all who would believe in him are placed upon Jesus and taken away. He doesn't take them into the wilderness, but he took them into the grave. And he left them there. There our sins are left, never to be remembered in judgment again. Remarkably, in Isaiah 53, 7, we learn something else about Jesus. Not only is he the scapegoat, that is, having the sins laid upon him, but he's also a sacrificial lamb. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before it shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see that in the New Testament, John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming, John the Baptist did, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He opened not his mouth, it says. The Messiah would not only die for sins, but he would do so willingly, without protest. John 10, 17 says, for this reason, the father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. And so Christ does not protest. Christ does not resist, but he goes to the cross willingly where he bears the sins of all the people whom the father would give him. Matthew 27, verse 12, when he was but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, we have our iniquities placed upon the Messiah. He bears the just penalty that we deserve as those who have all gone astray from God. That penalty being the wrath of God towards sin, that wrath being satisfied as God is pleased to pour it out upon Jesus. Peace then is made between the holy God and sinful men through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Messiah. Wicked men crucified him of their own evil volition, yet behind all of it we find is God's sovereign working, wherein he was bringing forth salvation for all. Greater than the suffering inflicted by the hate-filled and vindictive religious hypocrites was the divine wrath, which Jesus willingly bore for the sins of the people. Isaiah 53.10 again, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt and so on. But then, remarkably, what we find in our text is we don't just find the character of Jesus and then the crucifixion of Jesus, but it also alludes to his resurrection in verse 10. For we shall see, uh, he shall, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, this doesn't make any sense at all. Because this figure in Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord, dies. But then it says that after the Lord crushes him, after he's put to grief, after he's offered up as a guilt offering, then he shall see his offspring. Then he shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. But he's dead. What's the indication? Oh, he doesn't stay dead very long. This is the resurrection. He rises again. The many offspring are those then who come to him for life and receive it. And he prolongs his days because Christ is, in fact, eternal. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, he's accomplishing something through his death. How is it possible to accomplish those things through his death? Well, because he didn't stay dead. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So then, through his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his resurrection, what was the will of the Lord that was accomplished through all of those things? Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, what does it say? Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, first it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. Christ will be satisfied, the Father will be satisfied. We looked at that, that's that propitiation. But then it also says that through this, what will he do? He will cause many to be accounted righteous. Cause many to be accounted righteous. Just as that scapegoat. Aaron would pray over that scapegoat and he had pronounced all the sins of the people, confessed the sins upon the head of that scapegoat and that goat would be treated as if It was actually bearing those sins. And so Jesus Christ upon the cross, it's as if our sins are placed upon him and God the Father treated him as if he were a sinner, though he was not. Was he a sinner? No. But he was counted as a sinner and treated as if he was a sinner. But what does it say here in verse 11? Through all of that, he's creating a scenario in which many shall be accounted righteous. So this is the reverse of that so that then now all who believe in Him have His righteousness, as if that's being declared upon their heads, so that now, though not righteous, are declared righteous and will be treated as if they are righteous. That's that covenant of peace. The life and death of Jesus Christ then fully satisfies God, so His wrath has been turned away. For whom? For those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He said the law simply shuts mouths. The law simply shows us that we cannot save ourselves, that we're all sinners. But now God has revealed something through Christ that there is a righteousness which is apart from the law. Now, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but it's apart from the law. So how does one attain this righteousness? Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there's no distinction. So you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing that Jesus Christ bore the penalty for your sin upon the cross, and you're saying that's all well and good. Okay, so does that mean everybody is saved then? Well, no. And this is where I'm going to drop it in your lap. This righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's your responsibility. Believe. Believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Believe in Christ, receive the gift of eternal life. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. You say, well, that's too easy that you're saying just believe. That's it. Just believe. That's too easy. Well, wait a second. It says that if you believe, you'll be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Was that easy? Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. That wasn't easy at all. The point is Christ bore that for you so that it says he is to be received by faith. For those who claim or think in their, in their minds that, you know, I, I'm going to earn this salvation, I'm going to be a good person, my good works outweigh my bad works, and so on, you are incredibly guilty of minimizing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If, if your meager attempts at good works could earn your salvation, the why in the world did the Son of God come to suffer on the cross and bear God's wrath uh, towards your sin? Christ did the hard work on the cross, and now the invitation is there. Come and enter the covenant of peace. How? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. The life and death of Christ have fully satisfied God. Isaiah 53, 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Romans 4, 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You want to just try to work your way into heaven, work your way into the covenant of peace, work your way into reconciliation? We'll tell you how it's going to work. Uh, Okay, so then you want wages. Okay, so let's follow that scenario out. God will then reward you according to your innate righteousness and meet out to you whatever reward you deserve for the works that you perform. And every time you sin, maybe we take those things back. Start over again, right? Where are you going to be at the end of your life? Listen, you don't want wages. You don't want to get what you deserve. What, what does he say? To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. So this morning, believe in Jesus. You and I, like every other man or woman born into this world, are sinners. You and I, like the rest of mankind, have gone astray from the Lord. You and I, like every other person in the world, are separated from God naturally and in need of reconciliation. Further, you and I, like everyone else in the world, cannot attain favor with God through our own righteousness or our own good works. You and I, like every other human being, need a righteousness which is not our own. What we need is the righteousness of Christ, counted as if it is ours. And that only happens when we place our faith and trust in Him as Savior and Lord. So again, how does one attain that righteousness? By grace as a gift, when you believe by faith. So what does that look like practically, right? You know, some churches are in the practice of having altar calls, you know, an altar call is, like at the end of the service, you know, try to get people to come forward and to kneel at an altar and pray. We don't do that. I don't think that's a biblical practice. However, how do you preach a message inviting people to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord without facilitating some type of response? In a few moments, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray as we prepare for the Lord's table. This morning, if you've come and heard the gospel and you realize your predicament, you're a sinner separated from God, You're in need of His forgiveness. You're in need of reconciliation to Him, which only comes through Jesus Christ. And you need His righteousness counted as if it is yours. And your sin counted as if it is Christ. If you have come to realize that, then as we pray in a few moments, express that to God. Say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I trust Christ and Christ alone as Savior from sin, and I'm going to submit to Him as my Lord and to live for Him. And then you know what you do? You follow up, and then you... uh, Uh, arrange to be baptized publicly, make that public declaration that I'm trusting Christ as my Savior and Lord. So in conclusion, look one more time at verse 12. Amazingly, Isaiah sees beyond the death of Christ and sees even beyond the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Divide a portion with the many, he says. Divide the spoil with the strong. The picture there is like a victorious king returning from battle after defeating his enemies, after capturing all the spoil. This is Christ defeating sin and death and Satan, and he has the spoils of his victory in hand. And so He raises from the dead, He's exalted at the right hand of the Father, and then He bestows the spoils of that victory upon all those who belong to Him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you who are dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands. You had all these indictments against you, but through Christ, they've all been canceled. You've been completely pardoned. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. So this morning, if you will trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, you also will share those spoils of victory. You will be reconciled to the Father. You will receive the Lord's Holy Spirit. You will be declared righteous in his sight. So we have God who after 400 years of silence at a time of spiritual barrenness sent his ultimate revelation to his people in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Yet he did so in a way which was unexpected, in a way which was undesirable to Israel. The Messiah comes meekly with a message which confounded the Jews. They were so inflated with their self-righteousness that instead of receiving Jesus as their savior and his message of repentance with humility, they rejected him out of religious pride. They despised him. They relished in his death. They counted him as a transgressor, rightly deserving the judgment of God. But then the speaker reveals the coming attitude of a remnant of Jews when that spiritual blindness will be lifted as they consider once again the death of Christ. And what do they realize? that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who went to the cross both willingly and as a fulfillment of God's divine will. There on the cross, God placed on him the guilt of all who would believe in Christ and subsequently punished him as if those sins were his. Christ was unburied and rose again, victorious over sin and death, and distributed the benefits of his victory to the church. God's wrath being satisfied, peace being made with man, Christ's righteousness then given to all those for whom Christ died, all those who believe in him. Isn't that amazing? Written 400 years, 600 years before Jesus Christ's coming. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we pray for those this morning who have maybe heard the gospel for the first time or maybe understood it for the first time this morning. They understand their need for Jesus. They see it. They know they're sinners. They know they need reconciliation. They want to be saved. So, Lord, uh, help them now to express that to you in prayer. I pray that they could just whisper to you that uh, confession, seeking your forgiveness for their sins and expressing their need for Jesus and their trust in Jesus. We pray that you would save souls this morning. We pray that these who trust Jesus this morning would follow up and would uh, be baptized, making that public, and that they'd grow in the faith. For those this morning who are already Christians, Lord, help us to think of the gospel. Help us to meditate on the gospel, to be reminded of Christ and his sacrifice for us, to think of his broken body and his spilt blood, to think about the covenant that he has ushered in so that now we have reconciliation with you and peace by his cross. Help us to have an overwhelming sense of thankfulness, an overwhelming sense of indebtedness to Jesus. We're reminded that... uh, We're only in the faith due to belief. We're only in this because of faith. Help us not to fall into the trap of legalism, now thinking that we please you through our behavior, uh, but instead help us to trust Jesus continually and uh, to walk in the Spirit and through the Spirit fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So Lord, help us to think on Jesus, uh, not just in this moment as we partake in the Lord's table, but uh, as we go our own way as well. And Lord, we thank you for all of this, especially for your Son, in his name. Amen.